You know, the reason we ask everybody to uh, squeeze to the middle is because the vast majority of people who worship here can't park in the parking lot. (laughs) Most people who come to worship at Grace actually park on the street. And sometimes even if you plan ahead, uh, you get stuck way down the road and you've got to walk. And so we want to, you know, make it easy for people who come in to to worship a little bit later. Obviously, um, uh, we're packed. You know, this is spring semester and... um, we're, we're full. Uh, if you go down, nursery is full, children's wing is full. Throughout the week, this building is used constantly. If you come up here just about any other day of the week, it's, um, it's being used. It's uh, you know, really amazing how God has, has blessed us. It's a wonderful problem to have, but you know, in September, we have more people come than can actually fit in. They drive, they see how tight it is, and they just keep driving. They go, well, you know, it's just not worth the, the price, the effort. I don't want to walk two miles. I'll walk a mile, but not two. To worship, and you know the situation that we have here is the same that we have in, at Southwood. Southwood's been going for five and a half years now, and already it's packed two services. And so, you know, uh, we do feel like God is calling us to to multiply. I feel like God's calling us to be a a church planting church. You know, it's expected that this community is going to grow a lot in the next ten, fifteen, twenty years. In fact, it's growing right now faster than we can plant churches. And so, there are people who really want to hear the word taught. People who need to hear clear presentation of the gospel who can't get at our doors. And, and so we really feel strongly God's calling us to multiply. Hopefully you've heard by now that um, we feel like God's really pressing us forward to plan a third site. And, and hopefully, honestly, it won't just be a third site, but, but we'll be able to keep multiplying throughout the years. We're, we are trying to focus now on that third site and what it looks like. Uh, we had a retreat with our elders a couple weeks ago and uh, made a few decisions. Couldn't make all of them just yet. But one of the big decisions we made was uh, to send... Matt Morton out as teaching pastor to the third site. In case you didn't get the newsletter or didn't see this, um, we decided to put Matt's whole family up there. It makes them a little more attractive. Soon we'll, we'll be purchasing a, get Matt his own billboard, probably on Highway 6 somewhere. It's Matt with his wife, Shannon, and Abigail and Samuel and Elizabeth. We're going to send Matt out as teaching pastor. We'll begin looking for an administrative pastor to work with them. We don't know yet uh, where the site will be. Uh, we don't know uh, the timing of when we'll launch. Uh, what we would ask is that you would pray. That God would just, just make the, uh, as it says in the Psalms, make, make his path broad so we can see clearly what he's calling us to do. Uh, it's, for me, it's, it's, this is just it's a wonderful thing to be involved in a church where God is moving and active. Isn't that awesome? I love it. Uh, I was told, I had to leave the retreat early. I was told there about five of the men uh, trusted Christ at the men's retreat last week. For the first time, trust Jesus Christ. God is moving in hearts, and yeah, it's it's awesome. I mean, uh, lives are being lives are being changed. Lives are being changed. I got a great note from a former student a couple weeks ago, and um, right in the middle of the note, she said, "You know, she was struggling in her walk with the Lord when she came here. She trusted Christ when she came here, and she said, but I could remember sermons where you know I was I was working hard in school, I was tired, and I remember Brian looking directly at me as I fell asleep." <laughs> But somehow a lot of that just sunk in anyway, even through sleep. So, you know, if, you need, if you're a student you need a nap, I'm okay with that. Because God can work in mysterious ways. His word does not return void even when you're napping. It's, it's cool. But what I love is to hear how God is changing lives. We're involved in a church where God is changing lives. Because God is powerful and his word is powerful. And that's why we're here. So we're going to dig deep again into the word of God. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 25 and Genesis chapter 27. If you want to turn there with me this morning. And in these texts, we're going to be looking at 
a big question. Is God sovereign or is man free? <laughs> yes. So in all of my, my uh, years of teaching the Bible, my frequently asked questions, this always ranks, you know, it's top one, two, or three. Is God sovereign or is man free? It seems like these two are in contradiction to one another. It doesn't seem like you can reconcile them both, and yet it seems that the Bible teaches both. What do you, what do, you do with that? Well, you know, theologians have spilled oceans of ink trying to reconcile these two ideas. And normally what they do is rather than reconcile them, they emphasize one and kind of ignore the other. God is sovereign. He knows all. He plans all. He determines all. And some will even take that to the logical extreme that he's in control of all, even evil. I heard a really prominent pastor several years ago uh, teaching at a conference, and he said, God ordains evil. In case you missed the point, he said it about six times in the message, God ordains evil. If God knows all, he sees all ahead of time, he preordains all, then all includes evil. God is in control of all things. That's the understanding. And so there's uh, an emphasis on sovereignty of God and will suppress this concept of human free will or human responsibility. Others will emphasize human free will. God doesn't really know what's going to happen. He's waiting for our decisions and then he'll react around that. And everything's dependent in a sense on God. Which is it? Well, I don't don't accept either of those attempted reconciliations. I, I think the Bible teaches both of these concepts very clearly, very directly. And the Bible honestly never tries to reconcile how they fit together. The Bible just lays them out there without reconciliation. Both are true. And honestly, you know, it doesn't surprise me that there are things in the word of God that I can't understand. God is infinite and I am not. It's one of the reasons I worship. One of the things that that just draws me to the concept of, of heaven and eternity with God is that I will always be learning about the infinite God. I will always have something new for which I can worship God. That just thrills me because I love to learn new things. I love to grow. And I think, wow, for eternity, we'll be learning and growing and be amazed. Every day, we'll wake up and go, wow, I never thought of that before, God. You're amazing. I suspect that I may never understand how these two fit together. And yet, both are taught very clearly in Scripture. God is sovereign. And man makes choices, real choices. I would argue that both are necessary for us to live the Christian life well. God must be sovereign if I'm going to find rest in life. I need to know that God's in control. I need to know when I'm I'm uncertain and struggling with trials and tribulations. I wonder where history is moving. I need to know that God is in control. I need to know that my eternity is secure and it it rests in the the power and the strength of God, not in my faithfulness. God is sovereign. I need to know that if I'm going to rest. I can't rest if life and eternity ultimately depends on me. Second, human free will must be true for me to take responsibility for my actions. I need to know that I make real choices with real consequences and I am responsible for those choices That's why I bear the consequences. Both of these must be true. Now, this morning we're going to address this issue, but we're not going to address it with uh, theological propositions. We're going to talk about it through a story. Because, in fact, most of the theology that you know from the Old Testament is revealed in story. 
And these stories we're going to look at show how the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man just work together seamlessly in the outworking of God's plan. So we may not answer finally and fully all of your philosophical questions, but we're going to see how these work together in real life. Okay? So beginning with me, in Genesis chapter 25, let's read verse 19. Genesis 25 and verse 19. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then, then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment. They named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. First principle that we see is that God's promise is fulfilled through his sovereign choice. God is sovereign. And God fulfills his promises, the promises made to Abraham, later to Isaac, and later to Jacob, through his sovereign choice. Specifically, it's God's choice and not human effort. Read with me again chapter 25 and verse 21. It says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, what you don't immediately pick up on in, in this short verse, in these few words, is that Rebecca couldn't have children for 20 years. Okay, th- this verse encapsulates, one verse encapsulates 20 years. And I suspect that Isaac didn't pray to have a child when they first got married. Because he had the Abrahamic covenant passed on to him. He was told he would have children and children would become a great nation and bless all nations. And so he probably didn't pray at first, but then after a month or two or six, nine, a year, Two years, he probably began to pray, God, the promises depend upon a child and I have no child and my wife is, is grieving, Lord, give us a child. And so he prayed for 20 years. So he got married at 40, he had his first child, well, two children, the twins, at 60. In other words, he wasn't in control of this most basic function of human life. He couldn't comfort his wife. He couldn't guarantee that she could become pregnant. Obviously, he had to participate, but, you know, that's for another sermon on marriage and so forth. But what she wanted most and what he wanted most, they couldn't make happen on their own. They couldn't fulfill God's promise to them on their own. God had to intervene. And then once she did become pregnant, things didn't turn out exactly as they had expected or planned. Read with me in verse 22. It says, the children then uh, struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Now, obviously, I haven't had twins. Um, my wife tells me that even just having one is, can get really uncomfortable. <laughs> Toward the end, you're ready. Okay, 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 already. 
I'm told from friends who've had uh, twins that it gets doubly uncomfortable. But, you know, this, that's not what the text is about. Okay? It's not just the, the children turning and periodically punching the ribs or sitting on an organ. or what, It's not that. Uh, literally, uh, it says the children, the word connotates uh, bash their heads together. And when they're bashing, they're crashing, they're, they're fighting. She, it's so bad, in fact, that she says in my translation, if it is so, why then am I this way? Uh, literally, it says, if it is like this, why am I even here? She says, this is what I long for, and now I wish, God, you would take it away, and that I had never been pregnant. I'd rather not be pregnant. It's so bad. In other words, this isn't just the children moving and shifting around. There's warfare. She can feel it. It's so bad inside of her. She says, I'd rather be dead. I'd rather not be here. I'd rather not be pregnant. And what God says to her is, you need to understand something. This isn't just about you, and this isn't just about these two children. There are two nations inside of you. And she says, that's what it feels like, <laughs> right? No, no, these children will become nations because I am working something, Rebecca, that is far beyond you and far beyond them. I am fulfilling my promise through you. Wow. That only happens through God's sovereignty. Second, it's God's choice and it's not human tradition. God's choice and not human tradition. Verse 23 The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples will be separated from your body. And the older, and one people shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. That's not human tradition. The older is in charge. This is uh, the principle of primogenitor that uh, was practiced throughout this region, been practiced for, for centuries before them. The oldest was firstborn. The oldest had status. The oldest as firstborn would receive a double inheritance. The oldest would become the authority over the rest of the family, responsible for the rest of the family. The oldest would take on as status of leader all the promises that have been given to the family. And God says, no, it's not how I'm going to work. Remember, Isaac, you were not firstborn. Ishmael was actually firstborn. Jacob's not firstborn. Esau was firstborn. We see this throughout the Bible. God works in ways that are not what we expect. He doesn't bow to our traditions. Uh, Gideon was raised up as a judge, a deliverer for the people, and he was the youngest in the family. David was chosen as God's king, and he was the youngest in the family. God always works in this way because it's about God and his glory and his choice. It's God's choice. It's not human tradition. It's God's choice, and it's not human virtue. It's been said that there really are no heroes in this story, only sinners. Uh, Isaac is a man of his passions. He's driven by his passions and very passive father, a very passive husband. Uh, Rebecca, very energetic. First time we see her, she is uh, moving stones, watering camels. You know, just, man, she's taking care of business. Very strong, very energetic, but she uses that energy to actually deceive her husband to get her own way. Jacob. Thoughtful, conniving, deceiver. Esau, portrayed as a a man of the field. He's tough, but he's also a fool. He's adult. No no heroes, really. Just normal kind of people, selfish kind of people, foolish kind of people that God in his sovereignty chooses to use. Because that's really the only people that God has available, right? 
Romans chapter 3, it's a harsh verse, but I find it encouraging in many ways. God demonstrates his mercy because he chooses people like us. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, except that God chases us down and intervenes in our lives. That's the mercy of God. He doesn't give us what we deserve. Instead, he pours out his grace upon us. Why does he do that? So that God will get all of the credit. I love this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human might boast in the presence of God. We're here today not because we're better than the people who chose not to come, the people who drove and the parking was bad and they kept moving. That's not why we're here. We're here out of the mercy and grace of God. And that's it. That's it. Everyone comes to the cross on their knees. Why? So that ultimately no one can boast before God. God gets all the praise. God gets all the credit because God is the one who's sovereign. Ephesians chapter 1, Lance read earlier, it says, The God of our and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he has blessed us, he has chosen us, he has predestined us to adoption. Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace or his glorious grace. That's why we're here. That's why God acts, to demonstrate his mercy in the world and also to demonstrate his sovereignty. Now, what do we mean by sovereignty? Unfortunately, theologians often uh, import concepts into sovereignty that are not actually a part of the biblical concept. Biblically speaking, sovereignty does not mean that God makes all of the choices for every person. That's not what sovereignty means. What sovereignty means is... uh, Really two things. In, in both uh, the Greek New Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, sovereignty covers two concepts. Uh, authority and power. Sovereignty means God has all of the authority, the right to do what he chooses, and he has all of the power. He has all the strength to accomplish whatever he wills. Okay? Sovereignty means authority and it means power. Let me illustrate. A lot of you are still in school and you have uh, teachers or professors, and they are an authority in your life. Beginning of the semester, they hand you a syllabus. and They say, you will do this if you want this grade. If you don't do this, you're going to get this grade, this grade, this grade. We're in charge. And you come into class and you uh, study, you listen, you perform. Sometimes you're asked to do a speech. You stand up, you give your presentation in front of class. At the end, the professor says, C. You get a C because half the people, in my estimation, are better than you and half are worse than you. You're right there in the middle. You get a C. And you can go and argue, you know, take advantage of the office hours and state your case that your presentation was awesome and wonderful. And, you know, they may say, oh, sure, I'll give you a C plus. Well done, you know. Thanks for coming in. Or maybe not. So they have authority. They have the right to assign the grade. You signed up for that. Right? Fortunately for me, you don't have the right to grade me each week. <laughs> Although some people think they do and they come up and they give me grades like that every week. But, you know, th- really, actually, you don't. You don't have the right to do that. Okay? <laughs> now, the elders do have a right to do that. They can say, hey, Brian, I've noticed quality is dipping or theology is dipping. Or I don't like your illustrations. Don't use this again as an illustration. You know, they, they can say anything they want. They can say, in fact, we've dipped to a sea level and we're sending you back to school for a while. Take a sabbatical and go learn how to preach. Go learn how to teach. They, can, they have the authority. They have the right. And you know what I have to say? Yes, sir. That's what authority means. 
God has authority over all of creation because he made everything. Paul picks up on this event and this concept in Romans chapter 9. He says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, that is Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Why? Because God has authority. God has authority. A second concept in sovereignty is power. God has the strength to accomplish what he chooses to accomplish. And what has God said is his will? Well, he told Abraham, Abraham, in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. This will happen. Abraham, I'm giving my word. It's a promise. It's a covenant. It's an oath. This will occur. And so when we move ourselves all the way to the book of Revelation, what do we discover? We discover men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation bowing before the Lord in fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham because God will fulfill his will. And we can rest in that. We can rest in that. And that's our first application point. Rest in the sovereignty of God. It's a good thing. Psalm chapter 46 says, Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And if you belong to me, I will deliver you safely into eternity. No matter what you struggle with, no matter what temptations you face or trials that that assault you in life, you will be delivered safely into my kingdom because I promised So rest. Rest. So, first, God accomplishes his purposes. God fulfills his promises through his sovereign choice. Second, God's promise is also fulfilled through free human choice. Look back with me again in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 27. Genesis chapter 25, verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I'm famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. So what use then is the birthright to me? Jacob said, First swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Remember, sovereignty does not mean that God makes all of your choices for you. Sovereignty means that God has all the authority, all the right to do with creation as he chooses. He has all power to accomplish all of his will. And he can accomplish his will any way that he chooses to accomplish his will. Why? Because he's sovereign. And so what God has chosen to do, what he has revealed in Scripture, in the propositions of Scripture, but particularly you see in the narratives of Scripture, is that God has made one particular creature in his image. It's mankind. Male and female in the image of God. Endowed with with dignity, and, and an enormous part of that dignity is the ability to make choices. God has said, in my sovereignty, I'm going to execute my will through the choices of people. I'm not going to explain to you how that works, 
with me knowing all things and having all power and authority, but because I have all authority and all power and I have all knowledge and know what is best, I'm going to execute my will through your free choices. It's part of what being made in the image of God means. And when we diminish that concept, the image of God, we really rob from the glory of God who said, this is how I will exercise my glory on earth through these creatures made in my image. What that means is you and I have the capacity to participate in this great plan of God. In the execution of blessing all of the nations, we get to make real choices with real responsibilities. And God never says, this is how it all fits together. He says, worship me. Great illustration of this, my favorite verse to illustrate this, is from Acts chapter 2. It says, Jesus the Nazarene, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and you put him to death. Is God sovereign or is man responsible? Yes. Thank you for whoever said yes right at the beginning of the sermon. Yes. There it is. And Peter doesn't say, hey, let me get philosophical on you for just a minute and help you understand how this fit together. He says, no, this is God's decision and God's plan, and he knew it all along, and you're responsible for the choices that you made. So choose wisely. Participate in the plan well. What does that mean? That means believe. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. Believe. Pray. Pray for those who don't know Jesus Christ. God has said, pray without ceasing. Because when you pray, you participate in my great plan. Serve, find your gifts, use your gifts for God's glory and the good of others. Use them, share the gospel, speak the words of the gospel, participate because your choices, your actions have real consequences, so do it. How does this play out now in the life of these men? Two ways. First, Esau chose to sell his birthright and Esau suffered the consequences for the choice that he made. Esau, he's an interesting character here because he, he's rough, he's tough, he's strong, he's a man of the field. He's, he's man, he, you know, he's the, he, he's the mountain man. But he's also a man who is, who's unthinking. He's driven by his passions, by his, his appetites. He is unwise. He doesn't value things properly. He's impetuous. He's portrayed as this really tragic, foolish figure who gives away the thing that is most valuable for a bowl of soup. See, the birthright was the legal status. Remember, it was the double portion of the inheritance. But in the case of this family, it means you'll become the heir of the Abrahamic covenant. You'll be the one through whom Abraham is named and all of his people. Because that's the covenant. That's legally your right. And he chose to give it away for a bowl of soup. And the, the scene is very graphic. It says he comes in from the field. He's hot and he's sweaty. And he says, well, give me some of that stuff, whatever that is, that rough red stuff there, literally so that I can just gulp it down. Why? He says, because I'm starving here. Well, give me your birthright first. Why not? Because I'm about to die. (laughs) Really? You know, that's a long conversation for a man who's about to die, right? You know, my kids come in, they go, Dad, I'm starving. And I say to them, "Uh, (laughs) you're not starving. You're hungry. You can even be very hungry, but you're not starving. You know, I... I swore to myself that when I became a parent, I wouldn't say things that my parents said. But, you know, when you become a parent, there's just like, there's just this parent switch. It just goes off in your head and you, you say the same things. You become your parent, right? You're not starving because there's starving kids in wherever, right? I don't even, I don't even, and you say where, you know, they're there, right? And so you can't, you can't throw away, disregard that food or say I'm starving or whatever. So that's just not allowed in the house. 
But you expect by the time that they grow up, they'll realize that. Well, here's Esau. Oh, I'm starving. I'm, I'm so, why don't I just give it away? The one thing that is most valuable. Jacob is obviously not presented in a wonderful light here. He's thoughtful, which is positive, but he's, he's devious. The word for cook there is literally the word for hunt. He, he hunts with his cooking. He sets a trap for the hunter with his food. He knows his brother's vulnerabilities and weaknesses, and so he waits for the moment. When he knows he's coming in, he'll be really hungry, and there it is. And a good brother would say, oh, you're hungry. Have a bowl, right? A bad brother would say, give me a dollar. A terrible brother says, give me your inheritance. <laughs> give, me your, give me your inheritance? First, he says, like, well, really, it's no good to me now, so I'm going to die. He says, swear. Swear. So he swears to him and says, Esau sat down. He ate, he drank, he walked out like nothing had happened. And, you know, the writer uh, in Genesis rarely gives commentary, moral commentary on the behavior within the, the storyline. And there's a lot of bad stuff that happens in the book of Genesis, but there's rarely a commentary about the bad stuff. In this case, he gives a commentary and says, Esau despised his birthright. He regarded it as, as nothing, worthless. Abrahamic promises. Eh. Writer of the Hebrews picks up this narrative. He says, see to it that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal and suffered the consequences because he made real choices. Okay. Second event, Jacob chose to seal the blessing. Now the birthright is the, the legal right to become the heir. Okay. The blessing is the father's decision to actually pass it on. Okay. And Jacob Stole that from Esau. Turn to chapter 27, verse 1. Now it came about when Isaac was old and his eyes were too dim to see that he called his older son Esau and said to him, My son, and he said to him, Here I am. Isaac said, Behold now, I'm old and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, please take your gear, your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me. And prepare a savory dish for me, such as I love, and bring it to me that I may eat it, so that my soul may bless you before I die. Because I don't, I don't accept the will of God. I don't accept that God told us that you would serve your brother. Because I, I, I love you more than him. We got a terrible, oh man, you talk about dysfunctional home. This is a mess. All right, Jacob, I mean, uh, Isaac prefers Esau, right? Why? Well, because they're alike. Isaac loved uh, Esau because he liked game. (laughs) He liked the meat. Really? That's why you prefer that son over the other. And Rebecca really loved Jacob. It's a house divided. They're split. And so Isaac says, no, I'm going to bless you. I I don't care about that transaction before with soup. I'm going to bless you. Rebecca hears that. She says, no, that's not going to happen because I love the other son. Verse 5, Rebecca was listening. <laughs> Eavesdropping, right? She's listening to a conversation she's not, not supposed to be listening to. While Isaac spoke to his son Esau, so when Esau went to the field to hunt for game to bring home, 
Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Behold, I hear your father, heard your father speak to your brother Esau, saying, Bring me some of the game and prepare a savory dish for me that I may eat and bless you in the presence of the Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, listen to me as I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me two choice young goats from there that I may prepare them as a savory dish for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall bring it to your father that he may eat so that he may bless you before his death. Now, did she really need to scheme and deceive her own husband? No, God had promised at birth, Jacob will get the birthright. Jacob will get the blessing, but she feels like she must step in and deceive her husband and encourage her son to deceive her husband. And Jacob, he, he wants that outcome. He likes that outcome. His only hesitation is getting caught, right? He says, well, wait a second. If I step in there, dad's going to say, hey, you're smooth. He's hairy. What's up? It's not going to work, mom. So you leave that to me. Go get the animal and come back. So he comes back. She says, here, put this robe on. This is Esau's. I've got his clothing. You'll smell like him. And I cut these skins of animals. Somehow she, she put them on his hands and on his neck. So when he feels you, he'll realize, no, you're hairy too. It'll work, trust me. If it hadn't worked, he would have been cursed. So he takes the risk. He goes in, he puts, presents the meal, and his dad says, oh, you can't see him. He says, whoa, t- time out. You, you, you sound like Jacob. I know the voice of my sons. Who are you? He says, I'm Esau. I'm your firstborn. Okay, directly lies to his father. And he says, well, it doesn't sound like Esau. Come on over here. And he comes over and he, he smells him. He feels him. He goes, the voice is the voice of Jacob. But the smell, it smells like Esau. And that's what he responds to. The smell of the meal, the smell of his son, the smell of the field. And so he blesses Jacob. Verse 27, so he came close and kissed him. When he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and he said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you and blessed be those who bless you. He passes on to him the Abrahamic blessing which he had in every intention passing on to Esau, not to Jacob, even though the will of God had been revealed to him to give it to Jacob and not to Esau. So strangely, God uses even Jacob's deceit and Esau's foolishness to accomplish his will. So who's the hero in the story? Well, not Isaac, resistant to the will of God, not Rebekah, scheming and deceiving her husband, not Jacob, going along with her, deceitful, not Esau, who's a fool, Big, dumb, and tough. Who's the hero? The hero's God, right? The hero's God. Uh, Great statement by a commentator, uh, Kent Hughes, when asked what these stories were all about, he said this. It's about the invincible determination of God to keep his word despite the prevailing unbelief and unfaithfulness of his people. No heroes, no human heroes, just God. Okay, and really, this, this is the sovereignty of God in action. God has the authority, God has the power, God will accomplish his will. And he's going to do it sometimes even through human sin and through human deceit and through good decisions we make and bad decisions we make. That's the amazing sovereignty of God. So how do we apply this? Uh, If I could ask the men to go back and prepare for communion, we're going to make a couple of applications while they get 
get set for us. Two thoughts for you. And first, take responsibility for your choices. Okay? As creatures made in the image of God, we are responsible. What does that mean? Two thoughts. First, you're responsible to believe. If you have not yet believed, if you're, if you're sitting here this morning and you have not said, God, thank you that you sent Jesus graciously, kindly to die for my sins, then, then this morning I tell you, I believe. I believe Jesus died for me. In John 3.16, it says, uh, whoever believes has eternal life. It doesn't say whoever is elect has eternal life. It says whoever believes. Does God elect? Yes, but that's God's business. For us, he says, whoever believes. So believe. It's an imperative. It's a command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. This morning, you need to make a decision to believe. If you have not yet, believe. That God, I don't trust in my goodness. I don't entrust my good works to outweigh my bad. I just trust in Jesus and his death for my sins. I believe. Second choice, we're responsible to participate. God was working beyond uh, Rebecca and the two sons. God's doing this great work where he's drawing men and women to himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's, that's why we feel compelled to plant new churches. That's why we support missionaries and we pray for missionaries because this is God's business. This is what God does. And he says to his people, join in. Share your faith. Pray for them. Abide deeply in me so that your life is consistent with who I am. Live for me. Live for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make wise choices. Second, rest in the sovereignty of God. Again, I I don't know what God may be particularly pointing out to your heart, so I want to give you some options to think about as we close. You may need to rest in the sovereignty of God today. It may be that your life is just getting uh, crushed and hammered by, by trials and temptations and tribulations, and you need to simply meditate and remember that God is in control. God has not forgotten, and God will bring you safely into his kingdom. You can trust in God. He's powerful. He's wise. He's sovereign. He's good, and he uses all of that for your blessing. As we share uh, communion this morning, we are celebrating that, what, what God has accomplished for us in Christ. So I want you to take a few moments, just quietly meditate, just ask the Spirit to search what the Spirit would have you apply from this text today. Could I have the men come forward in service, please? Luke chapter 22, it says, When the hour had come, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. When you take a cup and give in thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. When you've taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way he took the cup after they had eaten, the final cup, saying, this cup which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Let's take the bread together. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, we thank you for allowing your body to be broken. Thank you for an opportunity, a moment to remember your suffering because of our sins. We thank you, Father, for sending your son, Jesus, so his blood would be poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you that you're willing to to give him for us, for our sins and in our place. Father, we thank you that his death and his resurrection secured eternity for us. And we thank you, Father, that you're a God who always keeps your promises and that your will be, will be accomplished. 
Thank you, Father, also that you have given us the dignity of working with you for your kingdom. I pray, Father, that throughout this week we would be men and women who rest in your sovereignty and who make wise choices, who take responsibility for our actions and who choose the best, who choose this wonderful inheritance that you have given us and and live for your kingdom and not for ourselves. I pray, Father, that you would make us effective through this community and throughout this, this world in bringing the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ to men and women who don't know you. Father, thank you that you've called us to this. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Be a blessing this week.